Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Glad to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Absolutely time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor. Make sense out of the senseless, and if at all possible, we'll find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's get to it. Saturday morning to you. Uh, it is a glorious day here in Chicago. I have the uh, the entryway of the Aurora Media Studios wide open. I can see the birds doing their thing and the sun's coming up and it's getting kind of busy out there uh, in this uh, early part of July. Uh, my voice, as you can tell, is not its usual uh, melophious tones. I don't know if that's accurate. Uh, Jen Weigel, who I do shows with on Sundays, calls it that, but uh, I don't hear it. So she may be right, she may not. Anyway, I know this is not my normal voice. It's been an interesting week of uh, COVID experience. This is the second time since May that I've had this uh, experience. And uh, both times had to do with being on multiple flights. So in May, I went to Virginia to uh, attend the funeral of Captain Jerry Coffey at Arlington National Cemetery. And we flew there okay, but we got rerouted on the way back and we got layover in Nashville and, you know, you get kind of worn down, I guess, whatever. And um, didn't wear a mask back in May, fully vaccinated, move about here in the big city of Chicago with no problems, get on a plane. Apparently there's a problem for John. So went through this week of uh, like really having a, a terrible head cold. And that was back in May, two weeks ago. Now, I went up to uh, Upper Michigan to spend some time with my son, and I flew up there. It's just a whole lot easier to get up there that way, except this time, apparently, I paid the price more than I thought. Two flights there because of the way the airlines were canceling flights. So Chicago to Detroit, layover Detroit, Detroit to the UP. Have a great week with my son and his wife, Kate. And um, same deal on the way back. Fly from the UP to Detroit, have a layover, back to Chicago. It came back a week ago, did the show, felt great. And the next day, things started to slide down south a little bit. And I thought, this is familiar. So by Monday, it was uh, confirmed with the uh, home test, uh, testing positive for COVID. And this Omicron variant that's running around mimics a head cold. So for me, it's a little bit like uh, getting to the point where this has become obviously part of our world as so many things have over the last couple of years and we just have to deal with it. And, you know, it's not on, like in the past, you never saw somebody wearing a mask when they were sick. I mean, the, the same protocols I think are basically in place at this point. You know, you don't hear about the, the mass uh, infections like we did before. The numbers bounce around a little here and there. This Omicron variant is not as dangerous as that first round that uh, you know, caused so many millions of deaths around the world and hospitalizations and the whole drill. So all I had was like a head cold and it's no fun. And I'm amazed at the steps that you go through, like the body goes through to take care of this. You know, there's the initial phase where you start feeling not so good. And then for like a day and a half, I'm on the couch sleeping constantly and then start coming out a little bit, some fever here and there and giving you a whole medical breakdown here, kids. And, but the, the part that I've been in for the last day and a half is the expectorant part when all the, you know, what's coming out and there's only a couple ways that can happen. 
As a matter of fact, it's been happening the whole time I'm doing this show. You just don't hear it because I turned my microphone off to save your ears. But it's astonishing, really, like the machine itself, the body has all these systems working in our favor, even if John wasn't smart enough to wear a mask on a plane this time. That'll never happen again. But it seems like, you know, it's always pushing towards life. You know, even even when we're in difficulty and sickness, there's this life energy inside of us that I think, I don't know if we take for granted, perhaps, when we're healthy because you're just healthy and, and you know what that's like. It's when your health goes south, you realize how important it is just to be healthy, little things. So I didn't lose sense of taste or smell uh, at all, but I totally, which is very strange, lost any desire to drink coffee. I've been drinking coffee for years, probably two to four cups a day in the morning when I work. And the last two days, eh, don't care. So it's going to be interesting to see if that sticks around or not, if it's a if a byproduct of having COVID this second time is no more caffeine, or at least in the form of coffee. I like my coffee. I hope it comes back, but last couple of days, kind of just don't care. But uh, so getting out of all that, uh, I don't sit still well. So sitting on the couch and watching television and movies and things is not a normal thing for me to do. Every now and again, of course, at night, we, we sit back and kick back and relax. But during the day, I think I'm supposed to be working somewhere. So I watched a few movies and I got on the whole Batman series. I'm a Batman guy and uh, watched Dark Knight Rises. And Christian Bale, in my opinion, was the best Batman. I mean, everybody's got their favorites. I get it. But for me, it was Christian Bale. And I think that it was because he was kind of a somewhat suave yet milk toasty Bruce Wayne during the day. When he put that cape on, he came, became this guy. And he had that different voice. I get such a kick out of it. I don't know why, but there's this one scene where he and Catwoman are trying to escape being, you know, blown apart by the, by Bane, I believe it was the bad guy. And they end up in his flying machine, this massive flying machine. And, uh, they drop into it and start to fly away. And she goes, ah, cool car. And Christian Bale says, it's not a car. And I just, I must have watched that scene five times in a row. I have no idea why him saying that struck such a chord with me, but I get a big kick out of that stuff. So I, I, I did my time on the couch coming out of that, you know, appetite coming back. Haven't been in the gym in two weeks. And that's really hard for me because as a creature of habit, that's a good one for me. And when I can't do it or, or shouldn't be doing it, uh, it gets a little dicey. My my body just feels so different. And uh, look forward to the next few days getting this all cleared up and getting back in the gym. I uh, had a great week up in uh, the UP with, with my son and, and friends. And we got into the sauna. and did, I was 200 degree heat for about two hours. And that just loosens everything up. And, and I feel like purge has taken place when I get in there and do that. And then I come back. And of course, on 4th of July, there was another mass shooting. This one here in Highland Park, Illinois, about 25, 30 miles north of the city. And I didn't flinch because it doesn't surprise me anymore. I mean, I think I've talked on this show before about specific adaptation to impose demands. It's a kinesiology term and your body responds to the demands placed on it or not. And we become what we allow in short form. And ever since Columbine... This has been allowed so many times over and over again with almost zero recourse. Yeah, let's say zero recourse, not almost. Uh, it's just become allowed. It's just, it's just here it is. And while we all do the tug of war on both sides of the fence and in the middle of the aisle of what should be done, this continues. 
It's interesting to me that only young men perpetrate these mass murders. You don't see young women between the age of 16 and 25 uh, going out and getting assault rifles and killing people. So that tells me a little bit of what's going on. And you look into the background of these kids and you see more of what's going on. And there's like this pattern there, obviously. And I don't know how you disrupt that pattern except for maybe it's time if you look if you want to play wild west and shoot people up in the streets and if you're found guilty you get 30 days to live and you can either get the firing squad or the, or the hangman's noose because there, there's no deterrent there's nothing to show that it's real once this happens they go to trial they go away and you never see them again and the people whose lives have been shattered they live with the pain the person that inflicted the pain you know they go on and there are no easy answers to this. It's just become part of the landscape, like so many things. It, it, it's a ripple effect in a negative way. So it's dominated the news here in Chicago this past week as it should, and yet it's the same thing, searching for a motive. And well, that doesn't change the fact that there are, you know, eight funerals this past week that shouldn't have taken place. I don't think it's as easy as gun control or gun safety because I'm a gun owner and a uh, Floyd card and, and been in, I'm a former NRA member and I have friends that are oh, file, you know, they own firearms. My son owns firearms, no problems. So it, the problem is access. And, uh, that doesn't mean control or, or banning. It means access. It's a different word and common sense for the greater good would be a goal that it makes common sense if a kid like this that walks up with tattoos all over his face obviously something's up and buys five guns uh you, the guy behind the counter might be like hold on a second let me just check with the state police and see let's let me have a conversation here so there needs to be some grown-up supervision around this stuff and uh, firearms especially do not bring out the best in people all the time obviously so this is an incident that's taking place more and more, a very tragic one. We haven't seen the last one, don't know when the next one is. And so now it's burned into our psyche about walking around anywhere, whether it's a parade on the 4th of July or a library or a church or supermarket, there is nowhere this is not happened. And it's been allowed to happen, so it will continue to happen. I've had people say, you know, who would allow this? Well, we all allow this on some level. The people that are in, in, political positions, the people who manufacture the weapons, the lobbyists. The, it's a great conflagration of, of people kind of looking to the left when we need to be looking to the right and figure out what's the right thing to do. And until, you know, I, I, I used this analogy uh, the other day with Weigel. We were talking about how this is, and it reminds me of Jaws in a metaphorical way, that there's this great shark chomping up people in the surf off the Imity Island. And the, you know, Chief Brody knows about it and Matt Hooper knows about it. Matter of fact, everybody knows about it. The mayor knows about it, but the mayor ignores it. It doesn't want to believe it because he's more focused on the bottom line dollar. And at one point there's a desecration of a billboard and it's a woman in the surf and there's a shark fin painted on there and she's screaming, help, help. And Richard Dreyfus, who plays Matt Hooper, walks up to the late great Merle, Murray Hamilton who played uh, the mayor. And he says, you know, you need to look at those proportions because they're true. And he said, and, and Murray Hamilton says, you'd like to prove that, wouldn't you? Get your 
you know, name of the National Geographic. Everything he, that Hooper, the expert, brings to the mayor gets dismissed because there's money to be made. And they can't close the beaches, even though there's a shark out there that's killing people because there's money to be made. And if they close the beaches, they'll go somewhere else. And eventually, Hooper gets nose to nose with the mayor and says, this is a miracle of evolution. It, all this thing does is eat, sleep, and make little sharks. That's all. And, you know, you're ringing the dinner bell if you let people go in there. And I think you're going to ignore this particular problem until it swims up and bites you in the ass. We've been getting bit in the ass with this since Columbine. And we're still ignoring it on some level. It gets covered. We move on. I use Facebook, which I spend time on for the business stuff to post and all the podcasts get put up there. You know, the shootings over the years... um, We've gotten so used to it that the the reaction to people online is getting shorter and shorter. It's a horrible tragedy. And the next hour, it's something else. We're just on to th- something else. In the past, these things were two, three, four days, and people are tired of the gun debate. They're tired of not having answers. The fact of the matter is that on the very day we're celebrating our independence, that we're supposedly the greatest nation on earth, we can't protect our people from our own people. This huge military buildup and and, and presence all over the world and more happens on our soil than ever is happening from outside of it and we don't know what to do with it that there seems to be no answer in the country that does everything and proclaims to know so much and be such a part of the world and a leader we're the only country that allows this you know in every country around the world there are young men who watch video games and you know all the things that the kids here do but they don't have the access so if they think about it they can't do it the greater good has prevailed in those places. We don't have that. It's a ragtag country, no question, 246 years. And I think to myself, what comes next? As I get into my uh, fourth quarter of my life here, I get pretty selective of what I spend time on, what I do, what I don't do, what I feel like I need to be uh, focused on, what I don't. And when I get ready to do these shows on Saturday, as I've always said, I don't want to just get on here and, you know, pontificate, bloviate, and verbally defecate just because it's Saturday. And I do four to six of these a month. And I have subscribers that get them and and they take care of that and pay for that and and support that. I don't want to just get on here and not have something that has some sort of residual return on investment for your listing time. And I don't think I always hit the mark, but there's a attempt behind it. And today's attempt is to not lose faith, to not lose hope, And it comes out of a conversation I had yesterday with a good friend of mine who's a psychiatrist, and we've been friends for decades. He's a great author, great friend, great insights, and he was talking about working with people who have behavioral problems. He would know. He's been doing it for about 40 years. And he says, you'd be amazed. He goes, but then again, you might not. But you'd be amazed that how much people, how far people will go to avoid uh taking responsibility for anything in their life and could constantly be blaming somebody else for their, their, their woes in their position in life. And he brought it up this whole gun thing. He says, it's amazing, right? He's not on, but not surprising. That's all about everybody br- blaming everybody else and nothing gets done in the middle that there is no responsibility taken really on any level. Think about it, whether it's the national rifle association with 5,000, 5 million members, what am I saying? And, or, or, uh, uh, you know, gun manufacturers or state representatives, Congress, 
to step up and say, we're going to do something different here. If I ever th- imagine that the former organization that I supported, National Rifle Association, that started out as a safety and uh, awareness nonprofit, uh, but there's no money in that. You know what? There's money in scaring people and telling them they're going to get your guns and then spending millions of dollars to keep that narrative up, even though the actual machine itself, the actual National Rifle Association, has got more to its own share of problems. I mean, these guys are all idiots, suing each other, bankruptcies, stab, backstabbing, you know, stuff that 12-year-olds do. It's, a, it's one of the reasons I got out of there. When I heard they were starting this whole they're coming to get your guns thing, I would get mail. And the first headline was like, John, we're here to protect you from your government. So they take everything and run it through that Second Amendment and they keep straining and straining until it fits a narrative. And so this particular thing has worked so well that you could never get anybody to give up their guns that are as an NRA member because we've been told for years then somebody's going to come and get the rest of them. And when the government gets it, it's all over and it goes into this whole big ball of bullshit wax. But that's where the narrative is. But if it ever came to a time, and I think about this often, that somebody there in the hierarchy would stand up and say, we get it. We think that it's a good idea to ban the sale of these assault-style military-grade weapons. Keep the rest of them. Keep the ones you already have. Just no more. Just these. Make it a little bit more difficult for this stuff to happen. That's serious responsibility. Serious responsibility, but there's no money in that either, which is unfortunate. So the price that's paid for those who die comes from a lack of responsibility across the board on so many fronts. And for most people, there's nothing we can do. And that's where the PTSD kicks in. That's where the hopelessness kicks in. That's where the loss of faith kicks in. Because you see this stuff over and over again, it's just allowed. Thoughts and prayers, okay, good. That hasn't changed Jack Diddley do shit. I'm a faith person, a spiritual person, but sitting around praying for something to change while you have the ability to do it is hypocritical. That somehow the Almighty is going to intervene and melt all the guns or get inside somebody and say, "Don't thou shalt not kill. We've been put here to take care of this stuff because we create this shit. And yet we don't take responsibility for it. So in conversation with my friend, uh, he started saying he, he feels pretty hopeless. And we had this conversation about what that means. You know, wh- how far down the road do you have to go and lose faith in a lot of things to, to feel hopelessness? And if you sit and watch the news all day, even outside of the, quote, breaking news, that isn't even breaking anymore for the most part because it's all normal. Former prime minister of Japan was assassinated a couple days. Guy with a homemade gun got him in Japan. You know, so it's not the first assassination, won't be the last one. So what happens though is that our nervous systems takes these hits over and over and over again. And it drains us, literally drains the life force out of us. Hope is really just a feeling of expectation and desire for certain things to happen. We hope that life will be different. We were hoping and expecting this is not the way it should be. I agree, but it is this way. And one of the most, I mean, the biggest challenges in life is to realize that expectation and reality rarely line up. And so we hope that this stuff gets fixed somewhere. We hope that somebody won't do it. That's just a waste of time. So in my opinion, 
And I told this to uh, Doc Johnson. The way to remain hopeful and faithful is to get totally immersed in reality of what's going on. Not what you think it should be going on or how things should be or some pie-in-the-sky expectation that is never going to happen. When there's a shooting here in Chicago, which is way too frequent. Now, again, I'm outside of the city. I'm nowhere near that stuff. But when it happens, you see the same thing. They gather on a corner of the street and somebody says somebody's got to help these children and they have a prayer vigil. Thing changes nothing. And I think getting real with that is the start of it. That's a reaction we, we need is response. So what those responses are can only be addressed until you get to the reality of things. And I got to say that for me, one of the big things I've learned over time is that the last person I want to give any of my energy and effort to, to make my life any better is someone in politically elected office from the president to the dog catcher. What a waste of energy. Now we go vote. That's good. And then what are you going to do about these things that are, that are there brought up on the show quite a few times, whatever the issue is when you're involved in doing, I mean, I have friends of mine that volunteer at Ronald McDonald house and because they volunteer there, they're enhancing the lives of, of people who need some serious medical care. My daughter was one of them many, many years ago. So whenever you go to McDonald's, which I do, I like to throw the change in because I know exactly where it's going to help people. And they, they volunteer their time there. And they're so busy volunteering time at Ronald McDonald House twice a week that they don't have time to sit around and worry about what's not working. So when you find these things that you can apply yourself to, you feel more hopeful, at least how it works for me. In about a month, I'm going to be uh, at a major alumni fundraiser for my high school. And we've been doing this nine years. It all started because one of our coaches, uh, Ray Smith, passed away in 2013. And a bunch of us got together to uh, go to his, his memorial. And then we got together a few months later uh, to uh, celebrate the life of Coach Prio, who is still with us. And it went on from there. There was a couple years. We had three guys drinking beer at Bullshit, which was okay too. But it's gotten to this big thing where we raise thousands of dollars every year to support programs at our high school that are needed that were never in place when we were there and specifically homelessness these kids are called stls students in temporary living situations and so what started out as a loss of one of our coaches and an incredible guy has transformed over time into this ripple effect of of, of helping kids We'll never know. I mean, we see, we may meet him once. They don't know who we are. But that's how we address a challenge. There's over 18,000 STLS kids in the Chicago public school system. When I went to school in the 70s, there was no such thing. I mean, there were kids in some difficult challenges and circumstances, but we didn't have any homeless kids, certainly not 60, 70, 80 homeless kids in the school living in temporary search situations. So when about three, four, five years ago, myself and a couple of my buddies went in to talk to the principal there and this, we're doing this fundraising, where's the money best used? Homeless kids. Our jaws hit the floor. There's homeless kids here? Yes. There's a budget, but we need help. You got it. So we're addressing a pressing need and we're having fun doing it. 
the Bulldog Bash is, I look forward to it every year. Get to see old friends make new ones. And for about five hours, turn the clock back a little bit and pound my chest, be 18, and hang out with my friends. And that's just an example of how we do it. A bunch of us get together to make a difference. So, sorry, you probably hear this uh, throat lozenger rolling around in my teeth, but hey, that's just the way it is. Reality radio, kids. Um, it's those type of things that help me stay focused and hopeful and not expecting things to be different, but doing what I can on whatever level I'm at to make them different, if at all possible. So abdicating our power, you, you pull the lever, you you put in your ballot, and then walk away for four years and, and complain, that's un-American to me. You know, Nate Boyer, who's been on the show a couple of times over the years, former Green Beret, he dropped a line in my ear probably five years ago now where he said, Every day I do something to earn my Americanism. Every day he does something to earn the right that he was dropped off on this part of the planet except complaining about why it isn't how he thinks it should be. And it's that kind of mindset that makes things better. Even with all the shit that's going on in the world and all the stuff that we do to each other on the micro and the macro level. So hope is good it's a good rudder, I think. But action taken out of the reality that you're challenged with is a very, very powerful thing. And I think it, you got to be able to, to push away from that stuff and thinking it should be different than it is and addressing it just as it is. It hurts more a little bit. But the, the you know expectation creates suffering because something's not the way you want it to be. And more than likely, it won't be. So we continue to suffer. The next time this happens with a mass shooting nothing will change because in the interim, in the meantime, nothing's been done. There's some gun control measures coming out on a federal level. Uh, this kid was able to get his dad to somehow sponsor a Floyd card from him, buy five weapons and shoot, get 70 rounds of ammunition into the air and kill people. And so every time that happens, this new reality show with just these young men doing it, um, we all have to deal with that. That's where that PTSD comes from. But now it just has become adaptable. So it, I don't even shake my head. That's what happens. Life should be more than that, don't you think? And in order to get to that point where it still feels like, you know, it's worth living, no matter how long you've been here, my thing is always to look in between the lines. I wrote this book called Every Moment Matters, Savoring the Stuff of Life. And Dr. Oz, who's running for office actually in Pennsylvania, wrote in there that, that I have this ability to find the sacred in the common. And I don't know where that comes from. Maybe I'm just able to articulate it in a way that works. But that's why I get up early in the morning before all this shit starts hitting the fan. And I find little things to remind myself that it's good to be alive little things, whether it's just water in the garden, take a walk in the lawn, you know, whatever it is, doesn't matter because those are the things that that's the binding material for me that holds hope together. And listen, the last minute or two we have here, the fact of the matter is, and I say this all the time, the shit's always been hitting the fan. Go on Google because that's where everything is found these days and go look up the history of any year 
the year in review. Go far back as you want or as most recent. And we, we tend to forget our history because we're right here. It's again, it's again, it's again. Oh my God, this has never been this way. It's never been this bad. Yeah, go check 1968. Go check 1952. Go check 1944. Go check 1932. You know, it's always something. And we think it shouldn't be. And therein lies the rub to me. And I agree with it. We should at some point, after beating the crap out of each other forever, think that we'd learn to get along a little bit better. And I think on some levels we do. It happens out of the eye of the public. It doesn't make headlines, but it certainly contributes to the lifelines. So stay involved in things that matter to you. And you will be less frightened and more hopeful of that, I'm sure. And if you get a chance, go watch Christian Bale in Dark Knight Rises and wait for that scene where he says, it's not a car. (laughs) I hope you have a great day. Keep the faith. Until next time, safe travels. Thanks for listening. Adios.